This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that you can join us for the next hour. And uh, if you are new to this broadcast for for the next 60 minutes, we'll be taking people's questions, uh, maybe a passage of scripture they're studying or an issue that they're facing in their life or ministry or local assembly. And they'd like biblical counsel or maybe a family issue Uh, We hit a wide variety of biblical topics, and so if we can be of help here in this first Tuesday of February 2021, we would love to hear from you. Uh, You have a couple of ways in which you can contact us. You can call direct, and Rick had just given that 843 South Carolina Exchange. It's 525-1859. Or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. If you do call, you can go on the air live. We give preference to live callers, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question, and we'll try to address it in that way as well. So let's go ahead and get started, Rick. All right, Pastor, we do have a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Go ahead. Hi, thank you. Um, this is a question. How are you, Pastor Brogy? Uh, doing well, thank you. Um, thank you. So my question is in regards to baptisms at churches. Um, one of the things that I have seen recently is um, both male and females and not pastors, but like Bible study leaders or friends um, being the one that actually does the baptism. Um, is that biblical and okay, or does the baptism need to be done by the pastor? It's a good question. So uh, this is what we would call a local church uh, issue. In other words, uh, there are certain expressions of biblical Christianity that can take on a different mode depending on the local assembly. And so, for instance, uh, in some local churches, there are obviously just two ordinances. Let's take the Lord's Supper for a moment. Uh, Some would offer wine, actual literal wine, along with bread, and that only. Some would offer wine, real, real wine, with unleavened bread. Some would offer grape juice and unleavened bread, or grape juice and bread, or... uh, both, a combination of both. So that's a local church issue. And so, for instance, when I was in the Ukraine, I highly discouraged them from using real wine, and I showed them biblically that the word oinos can refer to fermented or non-fermented wine, and though it would not obviously make someone drunk a little sip, the fact is is that when you're dealing in a nation where you have 60% of the people who have at one time suffered from alcoholism, it's better to err on the side of caution 
when you have these new believers coming into the church and they've come out of that background. So let's take it in the realm of baptism. Again, it's a local church issue. There is nothing definitively in Scripture that says only a pastor can baptize someone. But what you do see, like in passages like Acts 8, is leadership uh, performing the baptisms. And I think wisdom would dictate that because, you know, like, for instance, uh, I recently had a conversation with a woman that I baptized. And uh, as it turns out, she had visited our church. I uh, called her up as I call every visitor, if they want to be contacted, and that's their choice, and asked her the diagnostic questions over the phone. Um, She was clearly not a believer. And as I walked through the plan of salvation with her, she understood. I, I shared the gospel with her over the phone that day, and she ended up receiving Christ with me. And so I talked to her. She said, well, what do I do now? And I said, well, kind of first steps. And uh, I said, a first step is to confess your faith through baptism. She said, well, this is interesting because I was baptized recently. I said, oh, really? What was the context? Well, my friend baptized me at the ocean. And so there is a, a sad situation where a friend just took the liberty to baptize some person who didn't even know what the plan of salvation was and yet baptized this uh, adult woman anyway. Uh, she was in her 20s. So it was, uh, it was unfortunate. And so that's where wisdom would dictate, especially in the age in which we live, where there's so much confusion and false doctrine centered even around the ordinance of baptism, that it's done carefully, instructively. Um, and so if you open the door, I think, wide open, you say, well, anybody can baptize. And then you've created kind of a Pandora's box in the day that we live in where you've got some dad who wants to baptize his son, and his son isn't even saved, and he might not have the discernment. And then you've got to jump through more hoops, and you just, I think, create uh, just a lot of difficulty. So technically, technically, there is nothing in Scripture that would prohibit another believer from baptizing someone, but it's always a public declaration. It's always done in a... uh, local assembly context, and, and when I say local assembly context, I'm not necessarily saying within a physical building, because there are many places in the world where the church doesn't meet in a physical building, and for the first, um, you know, 30 or 40 years, for the most part, they met in homes and not in what we would call church buildings. That's a later development in the history of the church, um, but nonetheless, um, you know, there was wisdom uh, that was exercised uh, when baptisms were done. And so the first pastors, so to speak, remember not all elders or pastors or apostles, but all apostles are pastors. And so Peter identifies himself as a fellow uh, fellow pastor. And so the scripture reminds us in the book of Acts, he's preaching, he's there with his apostles, and uh, they uh, led, you know, 3,000 souls to Christ, and they received the word that day and were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls. The assumption, contextually, is that this was done by the uh, elders, by the apostles, and I think you can build a good argument for that because they're really the only leaders in the church. 
and uh, everyone, of course, is um, with a sense of awe, uh, is observing the signs and wonders that were taking place through their hands. So traditionally, and again, you know, how, why do we do certain things in the church today? Well, a lot of it goes back to the first century. In one of the oldest pieces of literature outside of the Scripture that has come down through Christendom is a manual called the Didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And it's dated around 100, 100 A.D. Some would date it as late as 120 A.D. But it's a pastoral manual that is written for the early church. And in that instructional manual, it reminds the local pastor that the baptism should be done by mature leadership who are able to evaluate the candidates. And I'm not sure everyone can do that well and thoughtfully and to what their motivation is. And so, again, if some local church says, hey, Dad, if you want to baptize your son, you can do it. I suppose that you can't dogmatically say there's nothing against it, but it certainly doesn't follow the pattern of church history uh, in what was done uh, through the ages of the church is recorded in history. And, and I think wisdom ultimately would dictate that wise, discerning leaders would perform a baptism and not just any old person. So anyway, I hope that helps some food for, for thought. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's By the Line. And Vince from Beaufort would like to know, could the COVID vaccine be the mark of the beast? You know, it's a good question. Uh, Someone actually uh, called me last week and they said they were having this discussion in their uh, Sunday school class, their adult Sunday school class, because I guess some of them were listening to some pastor in Hawaii who was very convincing, arguing that if you were to take the vaccine, you were to take the mark of the beast. Well, let me just comment on that. Number one, um, the Antichrist does not come until the seventy week, uh, the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. And so the first 69 weeks were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. And then there's a gap of time in Daniel's prophecy between the 69th and the 70th week. And the 70th week which is uh, termed as seven years in the prophet Daniel, matches perfectly what we read in the Revelation, that the coming tribulation period is seven years long. And it's during that time frame that the Antichrist will be revealed. And in the middle of that seven-year period, the mid-mark, that both Daniel and the Revelation affirms and Jesus affirms in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, uh, there is a... Uh, act that is done by the coming Antichrist called the abomination of desolation. And right in the middle of that uh, seven-year time frame, he goes into the temple, a rebuilt temple, there on the Temple Mount in Israel, and he will proclaim himself to be God. And at that point, he will demand the worship of the world, and people will be required to take the mark of the beast. So number one, uh, it's impossible to even say that we are in the tribulation period because the tribulation period is a seven-year time frame where the wrath of God is unfolded like a rheostat that's being turned up. And so in the first three and a half years, you have the sealed judgments. 
That is followed by the trumpet judgments, and it concludes with the bull judgments. So we're not in any time frame that even mimics what's described in either the Olivet Discourse, the birth pangs that are seen in the uh, seal judgments, uh, or anything like you read in the book of Revelation. So you'd, one, have to really spiritualize uh, the tribulation period to come to the conclusion that the mark of the beast is being offered. Not to mention, of course, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, but this doesn't change the scenario or not. Even if someone was a post, believed that the church is here for the tribulation, it doesn't change anything, but the church won't even be here. So this is something that happens after the church is removed, and the church is still very much alive and here. But again, the time frame that we are living in doesn't even begin to mimic the birth pangs. Now, people often say, well, you know, this is the time Jesus spoke of. There's famines, there's wars and rumors of wars and da-da-da-da-da. And uh, no, not really. Uh, There's always been those things. But what Jesus is describing in Matthew 24 perfectly parallels what happens after the church is removed and that door is opened in heaven in Revelation 4. So we're not even in that time frame. Uh, It's impossible. And then to think that, oh, if I take this vaccine, that I'm taking the mark of the beast, it's almost like, oh, you're being tricked into it. So I'm warning you against some trick. No, that's not the picture that we find in the Revelation or even mentioned in Second Thessalonians 2. People aren't tricked into taking the mark of the beast. They willfully choose to follow and give their worship to the Antichrist. So that's not something that you're tricked into. So there are these preachers out there that make for some really dramatic preaching. It brings crowds. It brings um, listeners, much like a lot of the people who have hundreds of thousands of followers who have been propagating all these conspiracy theories for, you know, President Trump and that he was, look, January 6th came and went. That was the dead deadline according to the Constitution of the United States, but you still had these people all the way until the 20th saying that Trump was going to, you know, institute martial law. And again, it's drama. And, And unfortunately, a lot of these people are Christians and it creates huge followings and uh and that's that that's very sad and there's a lot of preaching that is done to fill seats but is not biblically accurate 8435251859 if you have a question on today's bible line and sandy from okatee writes robert jeffress has written a book about heaven in which he says that saints in heaven can see their family and others he gave two passages luke 16:23 to 26 and Revelation 6, 9 to 11, to support that. What do you think? I don't think he's correct. Um, uh, let me just say, first of all, Luke 16, 23 through uh, 26, that's the um, parable, though some, I will say, do not think it's a parable, that he is actually describing a real event. Uh, if it is a parable, and I take it is because it has all the qualities of parabolic literature, it is the only parable where someone is actually named. And so the rich man dies and he goes to Hades. He doesn't actually go to the lake of fire. He goes to Hades. Um, And Hades is the preliminary place before 
all the lost of all time are placed in the lake of fire. But the rich man dies and he goes to Hades, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And Lazarus, who's the poor man in the parable, he dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom, which is a Jewish metaphor for paradise. And of course, um, what's interesting is that there's a chasm between the two that one cannot cross over from the other. And so in the Old Testament, this would be called Sheol. Uh, The Hebrew word is Sheol, and when translated in the Greek Old Testament version that a lot of Jews read, it's called the Septuagint. Uh, Put in your marginal notes of most Bibles with the abbreviation LXX, Roman numeral 70, because it was believed it was translated by 70 men, and some say even in 70 days. But in either case, that's the abbreviation for the Septuagint, Uh, They translate the word Sheol as Hades. Some English translations, instead of translating um, Sheol as Sheol in every instance to try to um, differentiate between righteous Sheol and unrighteous Sheol because there were two compartments to it, and New Testament terminology Hades in Abraham's bosom They translate it differently, but it's the word Sheol in the scriptures. So the point of the parable is, and Jesus only uses truth to teach truth, is that you could see from one place to the other. Um, But that is not the case once we go into the eternal state. A righteous Sheol was emptied out. Uh, according to Ephesians 4. And so Old Testament paradise in the truest sense does not exist, but now it is the place that Christ has prepared for us, which interestingly in 2 Corinthians 12 is also called paradise. So it's emptied out. We are brought into that place that the Lord has prepared for us because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but to take the Old Testament picture that no longer exists and to lay that across um, what we now have, I, I don't think is um, accurate. Most of the people actually don't use the two texts that he uses. They, they use a text in the book of uh, Hebrews where it describes a great cloud of witnesses It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And it's argued, and again, it makes for great dramatic preaching, but in my view, quite inaccurate, that your loved ones are in heaven looking down below and able to see what is happening in your life. But contextually, the great cloud of witnesses surrounding us or all the men and women that he's just mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, who walked in faith despite oftentimes incredibly difficult circumstances, and also when they were placed in situations that only God Almighty could have pulled off. They walked by faith. And so we are to um, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So I, I think, um, again, Dr. Jeffers is, is a good guy. I, I would definitely differ with him on that if he said this, and I didn't hear the sermon, so I don't even want to say that he said this, 
because sometimes people will say, well, so-and-so said such and such, and actually they misunderstood what that brother or that sister actually said. Um, but if he were to say that, I would say I differ with him on that. Let's go to the next question. All right. We've got a live caller from Savannah. Good morning. You're on the line. Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogy and Rich Porchner. i got a question. Um, I thought, talk about the Equality Act or how the Pope is trying to promote, you know, all these different religions and thinking that, that everybody's praying to the same God and all that. Well, if that was so, if, if I was a lost sinner, and by the get killed in an airplane crash or a car crash, and suddenly I just cry out to God, and people claim that just because I cry out to God, that's, that's considered a type of a prayer. But why should God, the true God of the universe, respond to that cry if people today believe so many different gods? And they, 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 how do they know really that they're crying to the true God when they cry out to God? You know, so why should, especially here in the United States, a lot of Christians are. are came in into this stupid uh, thing about the every, every, every the, the we also accept all the different you know religions we all got the same God you know it's not the true Christian God not the true Hebrew God yeah no that's a great question Alberta so let me see if I can uh, respond to it it is true that beginning with Pope Paul the sixth there have been these various meetings where all these world leaders from different world religions have been brought to places like Assisi and they have these meetings and uh, especially this Pope, Pope Francis has done more to promote kind of a one world mindset in terms of religion. He has said things that directly contradict John fourteen six, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through me. Listen, there's only one way of salvation. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. Uh, if he had said that, you might conclude there are other ways. Jesus didn't even say, I'm the best way uh, out of all the other ways. He's saying, I'm the way. And it's articular in Greek, meaning he is the only way. And if you think about it, if Jesus is not the only way, then he's no way at all. Because if he claims to be the only way and he's not, then he's either deceived or he's a deceiver, which would make him a fallen sinner and unable to save absolutely no one. Peter said it very succinctly in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So to take it back to this statement you have made, and I think it has to be put in the context, Paul in Romans 10 quotes the prophet Joel when he says, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, uh, Paul contextualizes that verse to the Lord Jesus, to the Messiah. So it's not just, you know, crying out to God in a foxhole, um, God, I believe in you now. Um, for all men already believe in God, that there is a God. Uh, there are certainly a growing number of people in the United States who say they are nothing, or they say they are agnostic, or say they are atheists. Well, they may not identify with a particular denomination or religion, but they are all believers in God, and the Scripture is clear on that. 
Um, and the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how shall they call on him? And the him contextually is the Lord Jesus. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And so he says it's a great, wonderful, beautiful thing for us to carry the gospel to an unbelieving world. So calling upon the name of the Lord is calling on Christ. He has just said, for Moses writes, that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, if you're trying to be saved, like many of the Jews in his day were trying to be saved by keeping and obeying the law, then they better keep it perfectly. But the righteousness, he then says, based on faith, speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. In other words, Paul is saying the message of salvation by grace, a righteousness that comes apart from obedience to the law, I've preached it right into your mouth. It's on your tongue. But though you know it, so to speak, uh, in your mind, unless you confess it, unless you respond and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, only then can you be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. So it's, um, listen, there's only one way of salvation. If there was another way, then God was a fool to have sent his son to die on a cross. But God is no fool. There's one way of salvation. It's through Christ alone. And so when the Bible speaks about calling upon the name of the Lord, it is calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus, for there is salvation in no one else. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. A uh, listener from Bluffton would like to know, is it a sin to go to a casino and gamble? Yes. You know, um, God calls it a form of covetousness. And we don't put our faith in luck. We put our faith in the living God, and we use the means by which God has called us to earn a living, and that means is work. And so uh, a person who's gambling is uh, really expressing a heart filled with covetousness and greed, and that's not something that we should do. And, of course, our culture preys on that uh, with a kind of regressive tax. We call it the lottery where, you know, I see these people sometimes in gas stations and it's payday and they're in there buying 50 lottery tickets. And, you know, I see them go out to their car and you can tell they're just as poor as mud and, you know, they're living on a shoestring and yet they're spending the family money on cigarettes, beer, and lottery tickets. And that's that's a sad thing. So, you know, Christians, we are to be above reproach and we need to demonstrate uh, a Uh, a pure testimony, and we need to earn our pay, so to speak, through the way that God gave it, and that's to work. In six days you shall do your labor. God expects us to work. And one day was a day, of course, of rest. Let's go to the next question. Emmanuel from Grand Forks, North Dakota writes, uh, first of all, thank you for your ministry, Pastor Brogy. I had a question regarding the Farmer's Almanac. 
Am I off base in thinking it's a form of, uh, or in the world of witchcraft slash sorcery mentioned in Deuteronomy 18.10? My family member told another family member to delay oral surgery because of something mentioned in the Farmer's Almanac about a specific day and the moon. Seems like trusting in something other than the sovereignty of God to me. What say you? Well, Deuteronomy 18 definitely speaks against spiritism. And it would speak against sorcery and witchcraft and seances and all the like, horoscopes. All of that would fit under that category. So let me just say, first of all, the Farmer's Almanac from its beginning has included horoscopes. And that's, uh, that's something that's displeasing to the Lord. And I know sometimes people read them, but they are often opening themselves up into the realm of the demonic by following after such things. Add to that, it's filled with superstition. You know, like uh, if you're trying to keep your chicken from uh, wandering out of the farmyard, you're supposed to throw caraway seeds in with the chicken. Or, you know, uh, if um, you carry a hoe into your house by accident, you better carry it out walking backwards and on and on and on. All this superstitious kind of things. That's not to say that there couldn't be some things that reflect, you know, sound thinking. um, And I I say even sound scientific thinking, because of course, everything that science says isn't always correct. They may have the latest word. They don't always have the last word. Uh, Science says today that we evolved from monkeys Uh, The scripture teaches quite differently, and I think the scientific record, the fossil record, would argue against evolution, and so science puts death before sin enters into the world, and the scripture is clear. There was no death. There was no disease prior to the fall of man. Um, So I'm not saying that everything necessarily in the Farmer's Almanac would necessarily be inaccurate. I I don't read it. Uh, but with that said, uh, remember, the devil often comes and he manifests himself as an angel of light. And one of the classic approaches that he uses is he mixed truth with error. And so if he can get people to begin to read the horoscope and, and to believe in superstitions and to put you know, their, their faith in these kinds of things instead of the word of God, then he's won a victory. And he is very subtly using a false spirituality, drawn people away from the living God. Remember, everything that is spiritual is not spiritually good. For we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against powers and demonic forces and so on and so forth. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. David from Warwick, Rhode Island says, I've always been taught in the past that the teaching of people like Les Feldick are in error. He teaches that the gospel of the kingdom is for the Jews and was legit until circa 70 AD. Then we have under Paul, the intervening parasynthesis of the gospel of grace for all of humanity. It's, it should say parenthesis. Oh, p- parenthesis, yeah. the gospel of grace for all humanity ending at the rapture, then the gospel of the kingdom will resume. What is your view on this? And could you refer me to any books, cassettes, or DVDs for further study on the subject? Well, I would certainly um, encourage you, David, uh, in Warwick, Rhode Island, to maybe listen to my series on the Revelation, because I touch upon this uh, certainly in Revelation 11, 
when the Lord speaks about the kingdoms of this world becoming the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And I also address it later on in Revelation chapter 20. But let's just think in some broad terms first. When we speak of the kingdom of God, it's important that you distinguish in your thinking the various ways that it's used. And there are three primary aspects uh, in Scripture on the kingdom of God. Broadly speaking, it just uh, affirms the truth that God is the one who's running the world. Uh, Don't think for a moment that when the Scripture says in Revelation 11 that the kingdom of uh, of the world will become the kingdom of God of our Lord, that he's not reigning right now. God is over it all. I love Psalm 103, and it says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. And uh, King David, in the Psalms, like Psalm 145, says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And so there's the broad sense in which God is sovereign. Nothing happens by accident. We just hit on this recently. I did a sermon few weeks back and interrupted the James series on God and government. And we spoke about the fact that every authority that exists happens because God allows it to exist. And so the fact that we have the ruler that we have, a ruler that, you know, began the day of his inauguration with a prayer service led by two transgender people and a homosexual. Then after he went to mass, he put his hand on the Holy Bible and swore to God that he would uphold the Constitution of the United States, putting his hand on God's book, a book that he denies the sanctity of human life from, uh, a book that affirms that life begins at conception, and a book that says the kinds of lifestyle that he is promoting are an abomination to God. So God is sovereign, though. Sometimes God gives us the wicked leaders that we deserve. So on the one hand, broadly speaking, the kingdom of God is God's rule over the whole universe. On the other hand, the kingdom of God refers to a spiritual rule. And so um, just a few weeks ago, we were, uh, again, addressing this issue where Jesus was before Pilate, and he said, look, my kingdom is not of this world. And so he's speaking of of a spiritual kingdom that is, you know, quite different. And Jesus can say the kingdom of God is within you meaning that when you are born again, you have yielded to the rule of Christ and you are allowing him uh, within you to rule over you. And that's the mark of a born again person. A a person who will not allow Christ to rule him and to reign over him is a person who's never met him. And unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But then there's another dimension to the kingdom of God beyond the broad rule of God beyond those of us who are born again. There's a literal coming kingdom. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus instructed us to pray, and he didn't deny that. So there's a sense in which Jesus, when he began to preach the gospel, and by the way, there's only one gospel. There's not the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom, and there's one gospel, and it's through the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ But because of the Jews' rejection of him as Messiah, the promise that could have come about where Jesus would have ruled and reigned in a much sooner scenario than he has, because it's been a few thousand years, that didn't unfold. And so at the ascension, um, Jesus makes this statement. I'm reading from Acts 1 in verse uh, 6. He had just spoken 
to the truth that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so in light of that statement, these people ask a very logical question. Because you see, in the coming kingdom on the earth, when Messiah's kingdom will literally come to the earth, that's not a New Testament doctrine. That's an Old Testament doctrine. God repeatedly promises that the kingdom will literally come to the earth, and one of the aspects of that kingdom will be a supernatural work of the Spirit of God. And so he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so they then ask, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And this, by the way, would have been a perfect time for him to say, no, it's all over. There's no coming kingdom for the nation of Israel. The church has replaced Israel as replacement theology teaches. And, um, you know, it's just within you. There's no literal kingdom coming. No, he doesn't say that. He says it's not for you to know the times or the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so, interestingly, in Matthew 12, you find the... Uh, unforgivable sin uh, recorded uh, that a person can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's an eternal sin. And then chapter 13 follows on its heels. I remember one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, he's now in heaven, Dr. Dwight Pentecost. He said the key to understanding Matthew 13 is Matthew 12. And by that, he meant in the kingdom parables of Matthew 13, Jesus is giving an explanation as to why the promised kingdom was delayed, and it was because of Israel's unbelief. But there's coming a day when uh, Jesus, according to Revelation 20 and verse 6, will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. And sometimes people have asked, and, you know, why not just come back, Jesus, and take us all to heaven, and that will be it. And that's what some people teach. Uh, R.C. Sproul, who was a fine Christian man, he was a preterist, and he wasn't a full preterist, but he believed that as a partial preterist, preterist being Latin for past, that everything in the Olivet Discourse was all fulfilled before 70 A.D. Same with the book of Revelation. It was all fulfilled before 70 A.D., with the exception of Christ coming in glory on the clouds. That's the only future event that we have to look forward to. And, of course, I unravel that in my series on the Revelation, and I give, among other rationales, six reasons that God has for ruling and reigning for a thousand years. And I think that sermon in and of itself, I think, would be very, very helpful to you. Uh, A book, um, Dr. John Walford wrote a book called The Millennium, and he does a great job in dissecting these various views and some of the nuances that you raise in your question. That's somewhat of an armchair question, but I've given you the broad strokes, and I hope that will be useful to you. Sonia from Fort Rucker, Alabama writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I've been reading a picture Bible to my children on most nights before bedtime. I believe that my most important duty as a parent is to educate my children about God and Jesus. I've noticed recently that my son, who will be turning seven next month, has had some problems accepting some of God's actions in the Old Testament. My son thinks it was wrong for God to ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, for God to send the flood, which killed so many during the time of Noah, and for God to send the plagues to Egypt. I tried to discuss God's reasoning with him. For example, in the times of Moses, God warned Pharaoh about the coming plagues and let him know the consequences if the Israelites were not released. God gave Pharaoh many, many warnings before he sent the angel of death to Egypt. 
Despite this, my son cannot accept that what God did was justified and right. How can I explain this to him in a way that he can understand? I'm worried he's developing an animosity that may later hinder his belief. Are these biblical teachings just too complex for him? Should I use a more sanitized version of Bible stories? I want to be honest and truthful with my son about biblical teachings. I'm worried, and I want my son to be saved, and I would appreciate your advice on how I can foster his love of God. Thank you for your time. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, l- let me respond first by saying that, you know, let's take Isaac in Abraham there on top of Mount Moriah. Uh, you've already raised this issue with him. And so what you want to first and foremost do is introduce your child to Christ. And I would probably be spending more time in the New Testament since right now he's kind of surfacing in aversion to certain things that he will not really be able to fully grasp without being born again. But, you know, if you took Genesis 22, and by the way, I preached through every single verse by God's grace on the book of Genesis, and we know from the book of Hebrews that Isaac is a type of Christ. And so a type is a foreshadowing, an illustration, so to speak, of what God is going to do in the future. And some of those types are in specifically uh, in reference to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so what would be a beautiful thing for you to do is to walk through Genesis 22. Yes, it was unusual for God to ask someone to sacrifice his son because God speaks against child sacrifice. But this was the only time God did it where he made an absolute promise that he was going to raise Isaac up out of the ash. And of course, Paul highlights that truth in Romans 4, and he looks back on it as an incredible mark of Abraham's faith. And so Abraham, you know, said to those men, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we we will worship and we will return to you. And the we, though it's printed once in the English Bible, it appears as a first-person plural verb in Hebrew in both instances, meaning we will worship, we will return. How are we going to return? There's only one way, and that is if God raises up Isaac from a burnt offering, and that's precisely what Abraham believed. And, of course, the typology here, Abraham is not some little boy. Uh, The Jewish Mishnah says he's 36. Um, He's at least in his 20s based on the chronology of Genesis. The Mishnah, of course, are the oral traditions of the Jews that were codified a couple hundred years after Christ. They figured, hey, you know, we're scattered to the ends of the earth here. We better write some of these things down because we're living in so many different places and people set different dates for it. But it's after Christ's ascension that the Mishnah is written. And so it's oral traditions. But even the Jews recognize that Isaac was not some little boy. He has to be at least 20 years of age or above. For all I know, we'll get to heaven and find out he was the exact same age that Christ was when Jesus died on the cross. Um, In either case, he is a type, he's an illustration of Christ. He carries the wood on his back up to the top of Mount Moriah. 
That's not something a little child does. Uh, he is um, laying there on the altar, and he is tied up. And we speak about the faith of Abraham, but we could also speak, I think, of the faith of Isaac, and that he could have easily have overpowered his daddy because his dadder, daddy is an old man. But he didn't. He let his dad lay him there, and that's what Jesus did. He said, no one will take my life from me. I will give it. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And the book of Hebrews describes the Lord Jesus as a willing offering in respect to the Father's request to lay himself uh, there on the altar, so to speak, on the cross as a payment for our sins. So what would be beautiful, I'm just, there's like a dozen parallels between the Lord Jesus and Abraham and Isaac. And so you might listen to that message on Genesis 22 and help your son to understand, here's why God did it, because he wanted to give us a picture of the Lord Jesus, because he doesn't want us to miss it. Yes, you brought up the great flood, but you would need to really uh, zero in on the fact that as time progressed, the peoples of the world became more and more evil and heinous in their attitude towards God. And you could kind of picture it, son, we live in this neighborhood. Suppose we're the only family in the whole neighborhood and all the houses around us, every neighbor around us wanted to kill and murder us in our home, that they hated us. They were violent towards us. They wanted to abuse us and hurt us. Would it be a gracious thing for God to protect us? Oh, yes, just like a police officer would want to protect you from harm. And it's so sad what we're seeing here in the United States. And it's a mark of the last days, this growing lawlessness where people don't even respect the police anymore. And they are retiring and quitting in droves. And we are headed for a huge problem. And a lot of these men and women who protect us, they're afraid to even use their weapon without being accused of, you know, committing some unfair act where they go to jail for the next 10 years. Uh, so we, we've got some real problems, but, you know, you, you create the picture there for them that God did this to protect this one family, eight people in the whole world that were left, the world against eight. That's what it came down to. And um, so, but what I would probably do right now is I'd spend more time in the New Testament and sharing the gospel and the plan of salvation with your son and lead him to Christ. And as soon as he crosses that line, uh, you'll see a real change. And uh, this woman from Alabama who's written in here, what's her name? Uh, 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 Sonia. Sonia. I might suggest to you to take my class on how to share your faith. It's online through Search the Scriptures. And the final session is is how to introduce a child to Christ. And so you might want to listen especially to that particular message in the series on how to introduce your child to Christ. And I think that might be useful to you. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, a listener in New Hampshire would like to know, is it okay as a Christian to declare that you have a best friend? Is it is having a best friend wrong? No, um, you can have, you know, different kinds of uh, relationships with people. I mean, John, think about John the Apostle. He described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, that's interesting. Didn't Jesus love all the disciples? Well, yes. 
But apparently the Lord Jesus had a special relationship with the Apostle John. And how was it different? Well, I cover this in one of my messages in the Gospel of John, but you discover when you take all the air out of the balloon that uh, Jesus and John were cousins, so to speak. Uh, Obviously, Jesus not having a human father, you'd have to say he was a half-cousin. And it might be that they were little children together growing up at the same time. It might be that Jesus was a little bit older than him, and he was like a little nephew to him. We don't can't say definitively, but they had a unique, special relationship in that there was a family uh, attachment there that he didn't have with all the other disciples. And so while he loves them all, John was kind of a special a friend to him and had a special relationship, and of course, the one to whom he entrusted his own mother to while on the cross. Uh, your wife, if you're married, she ought to be your best friend, apart from Jesus, obviously, but she ought to be your best friend. She ought to be the one that, you know, you want to spend time with more than anyone else. Uh, so, no, there's nothing wrong with that terminology. Uh, David and Jonathan had a special kinship. Uh, special relationship. And so it can be a healthy thing. But if you're married, your spouse, if your spouse is alive, that that ought to be your best friend. And if it's not, then you want to pray that maybe that would happen. Let's go to the next question. Okay, we just got a quick question in on uh, Dictated. They want to like to know, where do people get the idea that uh, once saved, always saved? Or, you know, can you lose your salvation? Well, um, this caller asks a fantastic question. I am doing a series right now called Basic Discipleship. In fact, um, tomorrow evening we'll be dealing with the doctrine of the Trinity. And so, you know, our kids at Bible school sing a song called Three and One, Three and One. And, you know, how do we understand the triunity of God? That's tomorrow night, and that's an important topic. And if you can't physically join us in the building, and we have an 1,800-seat auditorium, uh, that, you know, we social distance in uh, on the Wednesday night service. So it's a safe place to, to come, all things being equal. Uh, with that said, this is a very important topic, and if you can't come, you can live stream it. But in this series, the very first topic that we did was assurance of salvation and eternal security. So assurance of salvation is something that all Christians should teach and believe Uh, that you know today, this moment, that Christ is your personal Savior. If you don't know that if you were to die in the next 10 seconds that you'd go to heaven, there's a problem in your life spiritually. I often ask people on a scale of 0 to 100, where would you put yourself on that scale? Would you say you're 25% sure, 50, 75, 100? Where would you put yourself on that scale? And if they say less than 100, Uh, usually the reason they say that is because they don't know what the plan of salvation is or they have a misconstrued view of the plan of salvation. They think um, it is either totally or partially earned by human effort, and therefore no one could then have any kind of assurance because you'd never know until you died whether you'd done enough good to make up for the bad. But salvation is not merited. It is by grace through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift The free gift of God is eternal life, Paul will say. Gifts are not earned. They're paid for by someone else. They're free to the recipient. And this gift was paid for with the blood of Christ. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, not a reward for anything you've done so no one can boast. 
So God gives a free offer of salvation. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Jesus said, the one who believes in me has right now eternal life. So the moment you believe, you are given eternal life. Eternal life is not heaven. Heaven is a place that's part of the package deal where, where, where we will continue to enjoy this eternal life. But eternal life is not heaven. Heaven is a place. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is having a personal relationship through a second birth from above with the living God where he comes to inhabit you by the Spirit of Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and all things are made new. And as you grow, that relationship, that intimacy with God grows. So you can't lose something that's eternal. The one who believes has eternal life. It's an oxymoron to say, well, I have something that's eternal, but I might lose it next month. You can't lose something that's eternal. So some Christians teach assurance, but they deny eternal security. And uh, I don't know how else to say it, but they're just mistaken. The Bible teaches not only can I be assured that I'm saved, and if someone's listening and you don't have that assurance, go to searchthescriptures.org and um, listen to the signature message that I keep posted there all the time, would you like to know God is your friend? It's also at communitybiblechurch.us or live stream with me for the next Meet the Pastor, and those are always listed on the website and live stream, and I'll share with you how to be 100%. Now, a lot of people are 100%, but they're 100% wrong. They have a false assurance. So you want to be assured, but you want to be assured on the basis that God gives and that alone. And uh, once you are saved, you are saved forever. Now, it is certainly an abused doctrine where some people say, well, you know, if I get saved and I'm saved forever, then I can just go and sin all I want to. Well, I sin all I want to, and I don't want to anymore because I have a new want to because I've been made alive on the inside. And so when you're born again, the grace of God that brings salvation teaches you to deny worldliness and ungodliness and to want to live a holy and righteous life, Paul argues in his letter to Titus. So um, once saved, always saved is not a excuse to say I'm secure and so I can live however I want. Someone who thinks that way really hasn't uh, stepped into the kingdom of heaven. Well, we're out of time, but thank you for joining us. If you have questions, you can submit them at searchthescriptures.org. There's a drop-down menu. Ask Dr. Berge a question. Sometimes it takes a month or two for us to finally get to your question because so many come in, but we'll do our best and feel free uh, to join us tomorrow night at Community Bible Church at communitybiblechurch.us as we continue our series on basic discipleship. God bless you. I hope you will walk closely with Christ today.